Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Jemal. Today I'm speaking with Professor Laura Hine about her new book, Post-Fascist Japan, Political Culture in Kamakura After the Second World War which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Professor Hine is the Harold H. and Virginia Anderson Professor of History at Northwestern University. Her research focuses on the history of Japan in the 20th century, its international relations, and the effects of World War II and the Cold War. She's the author of numerous books and articles, many of which have been translated into Japanese. Uh, and the Japanese translation of post-fascist Japan, the book we're talking about today, is scheduled to be published later this year. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Laura. It is a great privilege to speak with you today. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a historian of modern Japan? Uh, hello. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I grew up when I was young in California, but then mainly in Boston. And I just got interested in Japan. So Asia in general was attractive to me because it has such a long history. I've always enjoyed history um, and such a strong historical consciousness. People think about themselves in relation to their past in Asia more than was the case in the United States when I was growing up. And of course, it just stretches so much farther back. And so all of that appealed to me. And then Japan seemed, when I first started thinking about it, a much understudied place. Uh, and it was modern, first fascist and then democratic, capitalist, all of the grand traditions of the 20th century were being played out in Japan. And yet when people talked about those things, they rarely talked about Japan. So it seemed the perfect case study, given that it was also the first non-Western country to 
experience all of this. Uh, and it just seemed odd to me that people weren't studying it. So I decided to do so. Thank you. I'm sure many people who became interested in Japan and Japanese studies really relate to um, how you felt and how you the impetus that led you to study about uh, modern Japan. Um, so I'd now like to ask you uh, about your new book, uh, Post-Fascist Japan. So how do you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Um, and related to that, how did you zoom in on the city of Kamakura for this book? Okay, two really separate things, actually. The first is that I sat down and I tried to think about what do I think is missing in the work that is being done now on Japan. Because so, for example, there's so much fascinating work on the empire and the way in which studying the empire changes the way we understand 19th and 20th century Japan. And that's been incredibly rich. Um, and the impact of the war has never gone away. It's just, you know, it remains the central event of the 20th century for the world, not just for Japan, uh, World War II, that is. And so those were topics that I thought were front and center. But the topic that had really dropped from view was the fact that Japan was emerging from a period of fascism. And I was really interested in looking at how people dealt with that, what their response was, how they thought about it, and how they experienced it. Um, because it seemed to me nobody was really asking that question when I sat down to start this book. I think other people have been on the same track as me, and there's been um, kind of a flurry of books on fascism in the last couple of years. But that was one of the things that I really wanted to explore. And now, of course, it seems very useful to study how smart, committed people rebuilt their societies after a period of, of very harsh authoritarianism. I'm sorry to say that seems more relevant than it did when I first um, started working on it. Kamakura. Oh, so my um, a book that I published in 2004 has a chapter on city administration in Tokyo and the governor of Tokyo in the 1960s and 70s. And when I wrote that book, I was really struck by how different the story of Japan looks when you study it uh, from local as opposed to national perspective. But I was still in Tokyo, which is, of course, the center of Japan's centralized system. And so I wanted my next project to be local, but not Tokyo. On the other hand, all my friends are in Tokyo. I've spent a lot of time in Tokyo. And so going somewhere that was not that far away was appealing for practical reasons. And Kamakura caught my attention because it's so distinctive. If you spent time in Japan, then that fact is obvious distinctiveness is not something that is maintained without work. People have to 
make things happen to retain that or to create that. And doing so leaves traces for the historian to find. So I picked it in part because I knew if I dug, I'd find interesting things. Um, and it's also, and, and then uh, furthermore, how Kamakura became the kind of place it did was clearly partly due to the efforts of the kinds of people who are my protagonists, who are educated people, at a time when not that many people were educated. And because I knew this book was going to partly be about personal relationships and the story of emerging from fascism had a very personal side to it. I wanted to keep the scope small and Kamakura is a small city. So I knew that if I started working on it, I would discover connections among all of the people that I was looking at, even if I didn't know they existed when I started. Thank you. Uh, yeah, when I was reading your book, um, I was sort of, I really enjoyed the way in which it sort of is a, as a local, national and transnational um, story. Um, and uh, you, you sort of try to tell this uh, bigger story about uh, Japan, but by through the through focusing on this one city and it sort of has like a transnational implications um, as well. Um, so before asking you a little more about the book, um, I had another question about your research for this book. So could you tell us about how you went about your research and what sorts of archives and sources you used? So the so the place that turned out to be phenomenally valuable was the public library in Kamakura. So like many university towns and towns with highly educated populations, there's an outstanding public library. And um, in the case of Kamakura, it's really an archive as well. And they, uh, the archivist there is um, created some projects there. So the Kamakura Academia, which is the subject of one of my chapters, she had a research group going. She... Um, collects materials on it. I just talked to her and she put me in connection with lots of other people. She also collected um, photographs from pre-war Kamakura. So that was a great place to to look. So that was a, a really excellent starting place. My previous work, I had some leads based on that as well. So the mayor of Kamakura was somebody who had been the student of other people that I uh, have written about. And so I followed some of those leads, the um, Ohara um, Institute of Social Science at Jose University, uh, Social Problems is the translation. Um, that's another outstanding archive, and I did work there as well. And then I just started, It's you know, I do post-war Japan, and so it's also interviews. So I just talked to people, and they introduced me to other people, and I went from there. 
Thank you. Um, so in the introduction to your book, you outline some of the debates and discussions surrounding, sur surrounding the term fascism with reference to interwar and wartime Japan. Also explain your definition of post-fascism. So how do you define fascism and post-fascism and what is the contention surrounding these terms? So fascism... I think is really very fairly straightforward. And um, at this point, the idea that it is um, something that is transnational, that it is a modern phenomenon, it's a mass phenomenon, but it, it's a response to a perceived failure of fashion, of capitalism. Uh, those are all things that used to be controversial, but I think people are really pretty much converging on agreeing on that. Jeffrey Herf long ago called it reactionary modernism, which is, I think, kind of a nice um, summary of it. Uh, so those are the that's the old um, controversies. In other words, it's not something that derives from Japanese tradition or German tradition. It's something that derives from the modern condition and by implication can happen here. And in fact, there were fascist movements in the countries that fought the fascist powers in World War II, some of them disturbingly well attended and funded. So those are, uh, those are kind of one set of ways of thinking about fascism. Another sort of question is, who is most attracted to fascism? And it used to be thought, for example, it was a Marxist argument that it was uh, the petit bourgeois, so shopkeepers, small independent producers. Scholarship today, uh, th those people may indeed be attracted to um, authoritarian leaders who celebrate violence, who um, are very nationalist and um, who focus their rhetoric on a kind of national celebration of a mystically uh, connected community that's organized along very traditional hierarchical lines and that sacrifice to that group is very highly prized, including sacrifice of other people to that group, um, a kind of celebration of willing self-sacrifice. But then when you look at um, how that is apportioned, it is not necessarily very fairly allocated. That, I think, is also now today not that controversial a way of thinking about it and that there is both a kind of political economic dimension to it and also a strong effective emotional dimension to it and that's what makes fascism appealing to people um, the people that i study very much saw it as elite fear of of socialism as well, mm -hmm. and there's a phenomenon that emerges out of that um, 
sense of threat from communism, um, social, not communism only, but left, left-wing and working class radicalism. Post-fascism um, is rather frustratingly um, used in two entirely different ways around the world by different people. So one of them is just to mean fascism, as far as I can tell. I don't understand what's post about it. It just means a recurrence of fascism, which would mean that it should be called neo-fascism if it's a tiny bit different, or new fascism, or just plain fascism. But anyways, that um, in Eastern Europe, in particular, is one usage of the term. I use it to mean we no longer live in fascism, but we used to do so. And what, how has that changed us? And what is the way we think about it? Because we have come through that experience. So I really wanted to focus not just on the afterness of it, but the experiential dimension of it, because we today are very quick to say this is the correct way to respond to fascism, but all the people who lived through it say it was incredibly hard to know how to respond. Mm -hmm. And I take their commentary seriously. So I really wanted to understand how they responded, why they did, and what was hard about it, and listen to their explanations about that. So that's why I wanted a specific term that focuses our attention on how their lives are actually different from ours. It's because they have been through fascism. Thank you. Uh, your book sort of, ha- I, I think it, it, it would appeal not just to people in Japanese studies, but also white w- more, you know, in, in, in a, in a, on a wider scale, like people working in other parts of the world would also find um, y- your work like theoretically important in terms of thinking about fascism and uh, post-fascism. So uh, I think then what was going to be my next question, you sort of already addressed it a little bit, um, but it's about your first chapter. Um, so it's about the city of Kamakura. So it's a very popular destination, as you mentioned. Um, it's sort of a very distinct place. Um, it's a destination for tourists, both foreign and domestic, uh, in the Kanto region. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about modern Kamakura's local history and how it developed this very unique social and cultural milieu, uh, both before and after World War II? Okay, well, thank you for what you just said about um, my work being of potential interest beyond Japan, which is certainly my goal. Kamakura, like Japan, when I start to talk about it, what people most often say is, but it's so distinctive, it's so different. And so the question is, how can we learn about the world more generally from places that are distinctive? Uh, One thing is that I think actually everywhere is distinctive. And the more you dig, the more you notice that. So the obvious distinctiveness of some places uh, shouldn't invalidate them because the idea that everywhere else is all exactly alike and this is the only outlier usually is not the case. But um, as for Japan in general, 
what I wanted to show is that Kamakura is shaping Japan as a whole through its distinctiveness, not through its ordinariness. And uh, so, so that's what I was trying to accomplish there. And so, for example, what I thought was really, the other thing people say about Kamakura is, oh, it's so snobby, which it is. Absolutely undeniable. For some reason, it doesn't annoy me as it much as it annoys a lot of people because I find it interesting. But one of the things I think is really striking is that although they're very proud of their elite culture, they're also very welcoming. And the whole point of much of this was to make it accessible and fun for other people, not just for the people at the center of it. For whatever, and you can find that attractive or not find it attractive, but they aren't trying to wall themselves off. And that, I think, is the heart of what Kamakura culture is. I kept noticing, if I would go and read articles, is about Kamakura. Some of it would be the things you'd expect to see, like pictures of the giant Buddha and people at the beach. And then there'd be a page full of, and you get to see famous writers taking a walk. Mm -hmm. This strikes me as something you would not see if you were reading about a simil- Atlantic City, for example. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me as something that made Japan different, that pe- the expectation that people around the country would be interested in seeing Osaragi Juro out for his daily constitutional... And so I was sort of curious whether that was true, which obviously was because there were dozens and dozens of articles like this, Um, but why it was true and how it came to be true and what the meaning of that was. And so that was what caught my eye. Thank you. Um, So uh, post-war Japanese uh, became invested and involved in the sphere of education as they attempted to craft a post-fascist society. You talk about this more in chapter two uh, when talking about uh, the short-lived Kamakura Academia. So could you tell us a little more about this institution and sort of this effort to engage in education after World War II? I mean, in general... People are really hungry for education when it's been denied to them. And working on this chapter brought this home to me so, so clearly. And then I started noticing when you read about refugee camps around the world today, how much that is true. Everywhere, I think. So it shouldn't be that surprising to us that it was a really big deal for people in 1945 in Japan. One of the things that's going on there is also a desire to get these disaffected young men who are coming back from the war into activity that's constructive. Uh, it's dangerous 
to have unhappy young men who've been trained to be violent sitting around with nothing to do. And so it turned out that one of the kind of education policies was to move people into higher education or higher high school um, as quickly as possible. So we know a lot about post-war education in Japan because the structure was changed after the war. But this is an aspect of it that I don't really know that very many people have written about. Um, And so that's one reason why I focused on higher education. Content of that education, once again, to go back to the issue of recovering from fascism, the question in people's minds was not just why was it imposed on us, but it was very much why did we accept it and celebrate it? Why were these crazy ideas that in the end were so destructive appealing to us? And the primary reason, they thought, was that people didn't have a strong enough sense of their own individual sense selves, and they didn't understand how to disagree with each other constructively. And so that was something that they needed to learn, both to believe in their own sense of what was morally and ethically and politically appropriate, and also to be able to handle it when somebody else disagreed with them, and that that was the fundamental quality of democracy that needed to be entrenched so that Japan could have a better future. And that was the role of educators. So the Kamakura Academia, many of the professors Um, who taught there had just come out of prison or had been in prison at some point during the war, the years leading up to the war. Uh, For one thing, they didn't have jobs because typically you lost your job when you got arrested. And so that was one, they were available. But also they were people who'd had plenty of opportunity to really think about these issues and they felt very strongly that this is what they wanted to do now that they could and young people wanted it as well Um, they had all been told that um the at towards the end of the war everybody should prepare themselves for glorious self-destruction, committing suicide was the appropriate way to end the war. The more you think about that, the crazier it is. Uh, They were also told they should do so because of the truly sadistic and terrible things that the invading forces would do to them if they arrived. Well, by... December 1945, that hadn't happened. And so the outcome of defeat was not what had been predicted. And that meant that young people also were questioning what they had been taught. They watched, uh, young people talked a lot about watching authority figures turn on a dime and suddenly spout something completely different. And as you know, teenagers are extremely sensitive to hypocrisy. So they really noticed that. 
And as one student said, he wanted to go to a school where uh, the professor's hands weren't dyed with the color of militarism. So one of the other things that caught me up, my eye about this is that it was mostly a humanities university. They had a little bit of science, but mainly it was drama, literature, film. Um, those were the main tracks. And um, so it was a very expressive, culturally expressive campus. And it was co-ed, which was highly unusual still then. It was um, open education philosophy in a lot of ways, which was not 100% new in Japan, but was still uh, not the norm. Uh, And the lack of hierarchy, people went to their professors' homes, they interacted with each other in a much more kind of open and freewheeling way than was very common at all. And that was exciting to young people. And it felt very much like they were being introduced to a new era and were part of a new era. And so for the people who participated in it, it was a powerful and moving experience that shaped the way they thought for the rest of their lives. Thank you. Absolutely. I can definitely see how in the aftermath of war and after, after the, uh, in the aftermath of, you know, experiencing such a devastating calamity that um, it, this sort of institution could have, you know, had such a profound impact um, on the people who attended this institution. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, you next turn your attention to the Kamakura Museum of Modern Art, uh, a cultural institution founded soon after the Kamakura Academia had shuttered its doors. So what was the impetus behind the founding of this art museum and what sort of post-fascist um, artistic and cultural vision did it present? So this is a chapter about history and art history, whereas the previous one was humanists. And... Uh, This is the first modern art museum in Japan. The one in Tokyo, the National Museum, only uh, began a year later. So once again, Kamakura is the site of a modern institution that's unprecedented for Japan. There was modern art was... Uh, viewable in other places earlier in Japan, but this is the first dedicated institution just to that. And so if that is the case, then they are making a statement about what modernity is. So I went to look and see what that was through the early exhibits. And They just were very rich and thought-provoking. So first of all, they're not national. And uh, the main curator, they had a very strong and inventive um, individual who ran the museum, who really put his stamp on it. He's a really interesting historian, basically. So a lot of things that now we see as not that 
unusual in either museum practice or in history, art history analysis, he was already doing in the 1950s. So, for example, his um, claim to where modernity started in Japan was not Tokyo. It was not samurai society. It uh, he locates it in Kanagawa Prefecture, in Yokohama, and the treaty ports, and the interactions there. Um, but he's also looking at, for example, the close interaction between artisans and kind of high culture people, and making the case that. Um, their sustained interaction with each other is developing a kind of Tokugawa era modernity well before the arrival of um, Commodore Perry. That's an argument that historians of um, economic historians of Europe are making now about what caused the Industrial Revolution in Europe. It was really not a common argument yet when Hichikata Teichi was making it for Japan. And so that's just one example. He was doing all kinds of interesting things. And he thought a lot about the way in which pre-modern art, particularly prehistoric art, was reinterpreted in the modern period. Uh, And some of this is straight ahead practicality. So the Modern Art Museum, which was recently closed down because the building just wasn't um, safe anymore for visitors, was built on a very low budget in the early post-war period and opened its doors in 1951. And they saved money in a lot of ways, including by having no climate control, which is absolutely mind-boggling for a museum. Also, particularly for a museum in Japan with incredibly hot, humid summers. So they dealt with that by having a lot of um, exhibits of pottery and uh, metal sculpture and things made out of materials that didn't degrade in high humidity environments. They saved all their painting exhibitions for the winter. So that, uh, so, so one issue was that straight ahead scarcity, poverty, no air conditioning problem, but tied to that was a very sophisticated analysis of how culture moves transnationally and how past and present um, interact with each other in an intellectual sense because people go back to the past and use it for different purposes. And he's using it to really make Kamakura and the Shonan region the font of Japanese modernity mm-hmm. in a way that engages with Asia, with uh, uh, Europe, with Latin America very early on, with Central Asia, um, all themes that seem quite commonplace in 2022, uh, but were extremely early. That was a fun chapter to write. 
Thank you. Um, so balancing democratic or populist demands with expert advice is a challenge that so many democratic societies face. Uh, you next turn your attention to social scientists and local policymakers in post-war Kamakura. So could you tell us a little bit about them and about how public policy was framed and approached in post-fascist Japan? Um, and in what ways was it different, if at all, from interwar and wartime Japan? So this chapter follows the careers of the kinds of people I've written about before. And these are policymakers. And um there's a kind of a gap between a lot of academic discourse and policy discourse because they are trying to solve real world problems and real world problems don't always turn out to reside in the places that you would expect them to appear if you're just thinking theoretically. And so there's, that's often where there's a mismatch, where somebody who's thinking about, you know, the problems of capitalism is operating at a super abstract level, mm-hmm. and somebody who's thinking about how do we make sure that sewage doesn't get dumped on the street is also engaged in dealing with capitalism, but in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to bring the discussion down to the level of actual problem solving. So for example, the fact that there was this museum was because the governor had asked um, artists what their biggest problem was in 1948. And they said, well, because Yokohama had burnt to the ground, what we really need is exhibition space. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, so the, the, museum itself was a response to a practical problem. Uh, But how do you sort of go on doing that in an ongoing way? And particularly if you're trying to be democratically inclusive, how do you handle the fact that people frequently want contradictory things or they have, um, they can't agree over what's most important or how to do something, even if they all agree on what the end point is. And so I wanted to delve into how people who are actually pretty good at doing this, who understand that you have to solve the practical problems, what were they and were they not able to accomplish? And that's what that chapter is about and how that seemed like a democratic activity and how they tried to make it a democratic activity. And uh, in Kamakura, that's all about land development Mm -hmm. because there's huge pressure to build in ways that have the potential to make it a less charming and beautiful place, but the charm and the beauty is the source of its attractiveness. And so balancing that is difficult. 
thank you. Uh, so something else you um, discuss in the book is um, uh, how, for example, like Japan settled its debts and wartime obligations with the United States and Western Europe's, but Western European powers. But on the other hand, um, Japan's relations with its closest neighbors in Asia were far from settled throughout the post-war uh, period. So to what extent were the Japanese post-fascists successful in contending with Japan's sordid wartime past regarding relations with their neighbors in Korea, China, and Southeast Asia? So I'm not sure that um, everyone would agree that uh, relations with the Western powers were resolved by Japan discharging its debts. Uh, The United States decided that reparations were not going to happen because it was contrary to what the kind of larger Cold War project of the United States was, um, or that they were going to be defined in a specific kind of way. And in fact, there were formal reparations paid uh, to Southeast Asia, uh, but along the lines that were structured by the United States, uh, which were not Mm -hmm. uh, necessarily satisfying to, um, say, the Philippines. But it wasn't actually something that in the early period uh, Japan had total control over. But if we're talking about a kind of more social reckoning by Japanese themselves, here too, I think we're really, it's a disservice to think of Japan as all one thing, Mm -hmm. is the internal debate about that has been ongoing since 1945, with some peaks and valleys. So... When I first went to Japan in the 1980s, there weren't that many people thinking about Asia. In the 1990s, there was a huge reckoning and enormous increase in attention to Asia as it was then in the 1990s, but also a recognition that Japan really needed to go back and... Uh, resolve its relationship based on the past, uh, and in particular, apologize for World War II. And I would say that was really where Japanese society was heading in the 1990s. Um, And then there was a backlash and a pulling away from that, which I think has um, not served Japan well. Doing the research for this book, it seemed to me that there was also a moment in the 1970s when that was happening, although I wasn't in Japan then myself, um, and that that was a previous missed opportunity. And one of the reasons, what I think was happening was it was hard to do much in the very early post-war period. Japanese people couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had tons of things they had to focus on at home. Other things um, caught their attention. But, 
you start to see in the 1960s more and more attempt to reconnect to Asia in ways that are not about dominating Asia. And um, all of the people that I am looking at are doing that in one way or another in the 1970s. But it isn't enough to really capture national culture. Thank you. Um, so, um, sort of thinking about your book uh, in, in terms of thinking about modern and contemporary Japan, um, I'm sort of struck by the, uh, a paradox about Japan. So, on the one hand, like modern Japan has not been at war since the end of World War II in 1945. Um, and I think many people would agree that it's a very socially stable society with low rates of crime, strong institutions, and elements of a social welfare state. Um, however, in many senses, Japan is also a very socially conservative society with a high degree of sexism and um, suspicion of foreigners and immigrants. And for most of the post-war years, it's also been governed by a conservative party, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party. Um, so how successful were the Japanese post-fascists, in, in your view, um, in creating a post-fascist society? Um, and what explains their limits and successes? I'm not... Um, I don't find the concept of paradox very useful for thinking about history mm-hmm. because it's a static one. Um, I think what we're talking about is a big internal fight. So there are conservatives in Japan and there are post-fascists in Japan, and they've been fighting with each other over these issues for a very long time, going way back, long before 1945. Uh, So what we see, what we call a paradox is whatever the current moment is in those battles. And um, I think the the real story is that the conservatives captured power in the national government and they're able to hold on to it with exactly the same kinds of strategies that explain conservative power in other places, by which I mean the reign of people who support policies that we know are not the policies preferred by a majority of the population in a nominal democracy. Uh, so one of the ways that that happens is gerrymandering, uh, or that's the U- U.S.-centric term, but um, weighing votes so that rural votes, for example, are much uh, count for much more than urban votes. And this is something that um, the Liberal Democratic Party has very carefully seen to. And it's gotten worse and worse because the population is more and more concentrated in cities. And so if you vote in Tokyo, your vote is worth way, way less than if you vote in rural Guma prefecture. Uh, And typically, sort of social issues, rural voters are more conservative than urban voters all around the world, including in Japan. So that's something that 
happens. So when you look locally, you see a lot going on um, that they aren't quite able to pull off necessarily in the national government when there are big changes. So for example, when health insurance really gets established in post-war Japan or um, the moment when anti-pollution measures become part of law, it's because the national government adopts some of the most popular policies of the opposition in order to hold on to power. So it's a combination of disenfranchisement and co-optation that keeps them able to kind of ride on the top of the national government, plus American political support is um, the Japanese government um clearly has had um ongoing behind the scenes american support because of its anti-communism against say the socialist party which was a lot stronger in the period i'm writing about than it is today Thank you. Uh, yes, I think uh, as historians, uh, we sort of think about continuity and change and this, you know, this, this sort of tussle between different, like, you know, um, groups and between different viewpoints and 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 so on. So I, I think you, you sort of remind us that, you know, like we shouldn't think of like post-war Japan as just being like static, but sort of uh, having all of these different, um, you know, political groups or ideologies sort of engaging in uh, a sort of tussle or sort of uh, debate and certain policies sort of end up uh, being enforced um, probably ironically by like conservative party and so on. Like a progressive policy, as you mentioned, like the national health insurance, for instance. So that's that's really interesting. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, so your book, A Post-Fascist Japan, has been translated and will be published in Japanese this year. Um, so for those of our listeners who may be living in Japan or are fluent in Japanese, could you tell us some a few details about the Japanese translation of the book? Okay, so Jin Bun Shoin is bringing it out. It's going to be called Posto Fascisto Nihon. Um, it's translated by Okuda Hiroko and Nakano Kotaro. I'm very grateful to both of them for doing that and to the editor, Inoue Hiroko. Um, and they are in the, it's in production now. Um, it because of COVID, everything is a little bit slower. So um, I'm I don't know what month it is coming out, but it will be in this calendar year, and um, that's something that is I'm really excited about the fact that um, it's available to Japanese language readers as well as English language ones. Thank you. I do hope that our listeners, whether whether, whether they're English speaking or Japanese speaking, uh, whether I hope that they purchase your book, the English version and the Japanese version when it comes out. Um, so, so thank you so much, Laura, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Uh, before we end, could you tell us what you are working on right now? Uh, at this very moment, I am writing an essay about trauma because that's a topic that I thought about 
um, a number of years ago and, and wrote about, uh, particularly in relation to World War II era dramatic events. But um, there's been a lot of development in that field since then. So I'm circling back to it and, and getting a sense of what the contemporary um, work is. And there's a project on um, the circle movements in um, post-war Japan, which was a very lively uh, um movement and a very varied and interesting one that Anne Sharif is a professor of Japanese literature at Oberlin University um, is um, organizing that I'm involved with as well. Um, And so I'm writing a piece for that. So those are the two things that I'm doing. Thank you so much. I really look forward to reading your work again uh, in the future. Uh, So this was an interview with Professor Laura Hine about her new book, uh, Post-Fascist Japan, Political Culture in Kamakura After the Second World War, uh, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Um, so, so, So thank you so much, Laura. Thank you.